0: Bye, guys. Have fun. Have fun storming the castle. We'll pray for you. Bye, love. Well, we're in the beginning of our—not uh, beginning—we're uh, in the middle of our sermon series, Portraits of Jesus. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to that passage in Mark, just keep that open. That's going to be going to be our uh, exclusive text for this morning. That's where we're going to be sort of like hanging out. Uh, so uh, keep uh, that one open, uh, and we're going to be talking again about uh, something that's really interesting about Jesus. And so uh, this is Mark chapter seven, verses twenty-four and twenty-five, and it says that. Uh, from their heroes, meaning Jesus, and went away from the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Uh, ha- have you ever done something like that? Maybe not specifically, you know, you-, you didn't go to the region of Tyre and Sidon, but maybe you went somewhere uh, that no one knows you so that you could just sort of sit and rest without people coming up and, and talking to you. You could just sit and rest, uh, not worry about what's going on with maybe work, with maybe your family. But just being able to get away for a little bit. Have you have you ever done anything like that? Yeah. There we go. I got a yes. Yes. So for those of you that don't know, the sermon moves a lot quicker when I get either some yes, some amens, some head nods, some form of interaction. Because otherwise I think you've missed the point and I need to belabor it and keep going on it. So if you want to get out of here on a timely fashion to go and take that afternoon nap, which I'm looking forward to personally. I'm going to get my hour back. Uh, uh, a little, bit of a, a little bit of talk back here. What I find interesting about Jesus is a lot of time we focus rightly on his divinity. He's the son of God. Uh, he's he's powerful. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing the sick, cleansing the lepers. He's doing all this sort of stuff. Uh, but over on this side, we sort of, uh, most of the time, skate over the humanity surrounding Jesus. The fact that he is in every way human. The book of Philippians says uh, uh, that he poured out his divinity and became a 100% man. The book of Hebrews says that he was uh, tested in every way that you and I uh, that is common to the flesh yet was without sin and so we sort of ignore this humanity section of Jesus and focus on his divinity and the divinity is good but sometimes I think we miss the message of the humanity for us and the message here is really simple sometimes you need to rest sometimes you need to uh, uh, go to a place uh, just to get away, and, and what's interesting about this is Jesus had been spending all of his time ministering. He'd been preaching, he'd been healing, he'd been, uh, uh, he had been feeding. At this point, he had already fed the five thousand, so he'd been doing all of these miracles that he's known for. And so he is tired, and he's just going. He's decided that he needs to go away for a little bit of time and rest. Um, in his ministry, he's drawing overwhelming crowds. And look, sometimes, the, this is really what I want you to know, uh, ministry is always going to be there. There's always going to be people who need help. There's always going to be people who need to know the love of God. There's always going to be people who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that it's not okay to rest. Jesus himself, who arguably had the most important ministry in all of time time, and history took time out of his day to deliberately leave the crowds and go and rest. A lot of times what we do, especially in the church, is we think we've got to uh, we've got to give it 115%, 115% of the time. We've got to do our best, which is great and right, but we've got to do it all the time. You've got to go to every single program. You've got to be there on the kids' day. You've got to be there at worship practice. Then you've got to be there at Bible study. And then you've got to be there Sunday school. And you've got to be there for breakfast. And then you've got to be there for church. And then you've got to be, and you've got to be, and you've got to be, and you've got to be and eventually what happens is you burn out because you're so concentrating on on having to be there and do that thing that you don't actually remember to get fed and rested yourself. And so sometimes uh, it's nice just to go off to the side and to rest. When my wife and I are on vacation, we actually don't attend the Salvation Army as a church. Uh, it's not a... Uh, a a comment on what the other Salvation Army churches are like. It's just sometimes it's nice to go to a place where nobody knows who you are. I say, I'm being like Jesus in this passage. Uh, if I go to a Salvation Army church, as a captain, I'm supposed to wear my uniform. People recognize that. They come up and talk to you. It's great, but I'm, I'm on furlough. I'm on vacation, and I need my time to rest. And sometimes it's nice just to sit in a pew, receive the message that the worship team has, receive the message that the scripture reading is, and then receive the message of the message without having that burden. And so uh, I think Jesus gives us a pretty good example here of going away and resting. Uh, his ministry was exhausting. He was going places, and everywhere he went, people recognized him, people knew who he was, people wanted something from him. And so he steps away to get some rest. But the story continues. Now the woman, uh, a woman came to him who was a Gentile, Uh, She begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. So even though he's gone away to rest, he still gets found. And this is what's really, really interesting here. Um, Throughout Scripture that we've been working on, there's been two examples of parents coming to Jesus with something wrong with their child. And in both cases, the health of their children supersedes or outweighs their own religious position or their own belief systems they're at the the, the end of their rope the end of their tether and Jesus is the thing that they need to go to to heal their children. So a couple of weeks ago we talked about a guy named Jarius. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue and his daughter was on his deathbed and uh, we had just seen that Jesus had just been kicked out of a synagogue for healing on the Sabbath and so we don't know if it was the same synagogue, we don't know if it was a different synagogue but what we do know is that the, the reputation of Jesus had been building at this point and spreading around so there was uh, every likelihood that Jairus knew exactly who Jesus was and as one of the ruling class as one of the leaders in the synagogue, he shouldn't have had anything to do with Jesus because Jesus was upsetting the status quo. He was saying that the rulers of the synagogue had got it wrong, and he was the one that was interpreting Scripture right. Yet even despite that, Jairus then sought out out Jesus because the health of his daughter was in question. His daughter was sick and in fact while he was having a conversation with Jesus, his daughter actually died and then Jesus went to his house and rose the daughter from the dead. And here we see almost something very similar. We see someone who is a Gentile not a Jew. She uh, doesn't have the same belief system that everyone else that we've seen in scripture so far has. She doesn't believe uh, in the God of Israel. She is a foreigner. And so even with that she knows knows that Jesus has got a reputation of healing the sick and casting out demons. And so she is going to go to Jesus for help. And so what I want to to sort of bring out of this particular um, little section of Scripture is you should never ever underestimate the length that a parent will go for their child. Now, I'm not a parent. Some of you are, yes? You would go to any length for your child, Right? You need to understand why this applies to everyone. Because as a Christian, you are the son or daughter of God. Which means God is your parent. He is your heavenly father. And whatever length you see people in scripture going for the health and well-being of their child, God will go for you. Because God is the ultimate Some of us might have had fathers who maybe uh, weren't present in our lives, maybe they weren't what a father should have been to us, but God in his perfection is the perfect father. And so here we see uh, parents going to the very literally ends of, of what they believe. that they're, they're shaking up their entire worldview because they believe that there's only one person who can help their child, and God has the same attitude towards his children. Now, what I'm not promising you is that you're going to be wealthy. You're not going to never struggle. You're always going to struggle. You're always going to have issues and problems. You're always going to have uh, uh, relationships go wrong. You're always going to, uh, uh, if you don't go to work, you're going to, lose your job you know like God isn't a magic wand that you just wave at and he fixes all your problems but I truly believe that the painting that scripture gives us of the father's love for us is that of a parent over a child and we see what lengths parents go to to protect and heal their children and so Jesus here in scripture uh, is interesting she says to him um, uh, she begs him to cast the demon out of a daughter and and, and God, uh, Jesus says this verse 27 He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, if Jesus had said this today, uh, Jesus would have been cancelled on social media, yes? Like, as soon as this goes out... Someone's going to look at Jesus and say, that wasn't appropriate. He just said that these people were dogs. And so what we need to look at is a little bit of the context uh, of this particular uh, uh, thing that Jesus said. So on the surface, it appears to be an insult. And it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Uh, in, the, in today's society, we are a, apparently a canine-loving people. Now, I'm a cat person. Okay? Okay. I like cats. I like cats better than dogs. One reason, I taught my ki- my kitties when they were born that there is a little tray in the corner and that's where they go to do their business. I do not have to let a dog out into a yard and I do not have to follow him around and scoop it up. That's why I'm a cat person over a dog people. However, statistically, dogs are man's best friends. And you all know it because it's sort of... Right there and and there are movies about all dogs going to heaven, and there are movies about uh, dogs great dog detectives and things like that, and so dogs are really ingrained in our society, uh, but back then, not so much dogs were scavengers they weren 't kept as pets. Uh, it was a really rough time for them. People at this age didn 't know that they were go- the man 's best friends. They were just playing the long game i guess and so on the on the surface, this really does seem like an insult wild dirty uncouth uh, in every way so dogs weren 't really great um, and in fact in, in, in that society to call someone a dog was a terrible insult but but what was what was really interesting here um is this actually wasn't an insult. In and of itself, it was a parable. It was one of those stories that Jesus told where, where something actually means something else. And in fact, he didn't use the word dogs. He used the diminutive form. He said puppies. Now, doesn't that give you a different sort of connotation of what Jesus is saying? Instead of dogs, when you're thinking a rabid dog, maybe outside barking, end of the chain, you know, he needs the... D- but instead, imagine a puppy Now, I'm a cat person, but I like puppies because they're about the size of a cat, let's be honest. But aren't puppies just a little bit different before they, they grow up? They're a bit more snuggly. They're a bit more energetic. They've got a different connotation. And so here, Jesus is not saying, uh, uh, it's, it's he's not calling her uh, a dog as, so, as much as an insult, but he's saying that they haven't grown up into the fullness of what they'll yet become. They're wide open, full of potential. Uh, there's a saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But when they're puppies, that's when we train them. That's when they get trained uh, uh, in in whatever way you want to train them. If you want them to sit, roll over, play dead, that's when you get them when they're puppies. It's really difficult once they're older. And so Jesus here is being very interesting. He's using the the diminutive form of puppies uh, to describe the Gentile people. They're not yet grown up into what God has for them. Because right now in this point of Jesus' ministry, he's come for the Jews to show uh, uh, that he is the Messiah from Hebrew Scripture. But he knows that after his death, his followers are going to go out into the entire world and they're going to preach to the Gentile people. And the Gentiles who were puppies are going to grow up into the fullness as being messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see where understanding some of the terminology that Jesus uses, some of the language that Jesus has used in the context that he uses it actually changes the message just a little bit. He's not calling Gentile dogs because they're worthless. He's saying that they're puppies, but they're not yet grown up into what uh, he knows they're going to be. And so he says... He says to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this woman is a mother. And this is this is kind of what he's saying to her. Uh, you know how families eat. There's a, uh, there's a certain order in the way uh, of importance. Uh, at a family meal in these times, uh, the father or head of the household ate first. Then the mother ate second, or, or, or I shouldn't say second. They ate at the same time. But as far as who got to choose, you know, when you're at a dinner party and there's a plate of steaks going around, and whoever gets the first choice gets the best steak, right? Right? No, no, that doesn't happen to you. Like when you're out, maybe steaks a, a bath. Maybe you're not steaky. Maybe you you eat something something else. Maybe it's a plate of hamburgers going around, and you see the juiciest, tastiest, wonderfulest hamburger on top the father would get to choose that one first and then the mother would get to choose second and the kids would get to choose third and then whatever was left over was put under the table for the puppies or dogs to eat. Right, does that make sense? And so uh, uh, Jesus says to her, essentially, you know uh, uh, how this goes. I mean, before the pets eat, The children have to eat. And so what he's saying uh, about his own life, his own ministry, his own miracles, is that he is primarily here for the Jewish people to reveal to them how in Scripture he is the Messiah and how that is going to uh, change the way they live their lives. And and so that message at this time is not yet for the Gentiles. That is going to come later. And what he says is that it's not right to violate that order. The puppies must not eat the food from the table before the children do. Now... I have, like I said, a couple of cats. My cats are a little bit badly behaved when it comes to the dinner table. Uh, Because it's just my wife and me, we don't have kids, we never stopped them from jumping up on the dinner table when they wanted to. I didn't really see the point until uh, a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were sitting down for our anniversary dinner. She had made steak, which is why I used it as an example. We'd put it on the table, and we had some nice sides, and it was very lovely. And one of my cats decided they were going to jump onto the table, run over to the plate, and start sniffing at the steak. And if I hadn't picked her up and, and scooted her away, uh, my, my cat is uh, polydactyl. She has an extra thumb, and she has extra claws, and when she wants something, she usually gets it because she can like, she can open doors, is what I'm saying. Like It's not because she's intelligent, it's because she's like the r- velociraptor in Jurassic Park. She can open doors. And so, uh, if I hadn't got rid of her, she would have stolen this steak from the table. She probably wouldn't have been able to eat it all, but she would have tried And so what Jesus is actually saying is you don't let the puppies up onto the table. You don't let the dogs onto the table to eat from your plate while your kids are still there eating. You wait until the kids are done, then you give the dogs the table scraps. Uh, Are we tracking, are we making sense to what Jesus is sort of saying here? So he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's so she's sort of in this uh, 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 conversation with Jesus, uh, and she says, Yes, uh, even though we don't feed them from the table, they still get the scraps. And what she's begging for is the scraps of his ministry, saying, If you're not too busy, if you're not uh, too whatever, I've got a daughter who needs help. Would you please help? She responds, essentially saying, Okay, I know I'm not from Israel. I don't worship the same God that, that the Israelites worship. Therefore, I don't have a place at the table, and and this sort of mental picture can be a little bit um, a little bit triggering for some people. The idea of you not having a place at the table. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever had this experience, but uh, uh, we have a group of friends, and uh, when there's these two couples over here, they click together really well. But if an, another couple comes in, suddenly uh, the first couple actually starts clicking better with the third couple and the second couple feels sort of ostracized. You know this sort of feeling, maybe it's not a couple, maybe it's friends, maybe you've got a, a guy or a girl who you're really great friends with but then when other people come around you're sort of shunted off to the side and it feels like you don't have a proper place at the table. It feels like you play second fiddle or second trombone, that you're not the best uh, you know, uh, of the friends and suddenly, suddenly you get a little bit ostracized. Suddenly you have to step back. She understands that she doesn't have a place at the table. And here's what I find really interesting about it. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't stand up and, and wave a flag. She doesn't stand up and say, Well, that's just wrong. I have equal rights. That's wrong. You need to treat me like everyone else. That's wrong. How dare you speak to me in such a manner? That's wrong. How dare you compare me to being a dog? She doesn't do any of that. She doesn't take offense. Somehow our society has learned when things don't go your way, the the appropriate way of responding is to stand up and make as much noise as loudly as possible as you possibly can, and that's the way that you're going to get your way. Have, have you had this experience? Um, I've had this experience. We work here in social services. Uh, when we have clients that come in who, who, for one reason or another, don't get everything they wanted, they'll sort of do this. They'll stand up. They'll make a lot of noise. Uh, Alan is nodding his head. He, he knows. <coughs> and this is again, this is not everyone. This, uh, don't, don't hear me say this is every single client. These are just the, the select clients. Uh, uh, but they make this big noise and they make, you don't, I have the right to, I get to this, I deserve that. And, and something happens in my heart. I'm working with the Holy Spirit on this, or I should say he's working on me, that normally when someone stands up like that, uh, I sort of my personality sort of closes in on itself, and, and I'm less generous, I'm less kind, and I'm less like Jesus than I really should be. Um, and I tell you this, so you know I'm not perfect. I never claim to be perfect, but the Holy Spirit is working on it. But when someone stands up and they're aggressive and they're, I deserve, my immediate reaction is sort of like, okay, I'm going over here now. I don't, I don't need to be around that. But this woman doesn't do that. She literally just says, yeah, uh, you're right, I don't deserve this, However. She says, there's, there's more than enough food on this table for everyone. And I know you've got to do it in a certain way. But Lord, I could really use mine right now. I could really use the blessing of Jesus now. I could really use my daughter's healing now. I don't think I can wait. I know that there is a time, there is a place, and my time and place has not yet come. But Lord, there's plenty on this table So much on the table, in fact, that a lot of the children of Israel weren't eating at the time. Jairus was a one-off kind of person. Most of the religious leaders were ignoring Jesus at this point. I love it that she's wrestling with Jesus in the most respectful way that a person possibly can, uh, and she doesn't want to take no for an answer. And I find this really interesting because a lot of people are going to tell you that if you love Jesus, you don't question the plan that he has for your life. Uh, that's true to an extent. You do have to have faith in God. You have to trust God. You have to understand that he has laid a path for your life out in front of you and that he expects a, a certain amount of faith. But if you read Scripture, Scripture is full of people not understanding what the plan of God is on their life and asking him questions about it. Uh, God, are you really sure that's the, the, the way to do for me? I mean, have you read the book of Psalms? Have you read... Uh, uh, his David's writings, uh, where he literally uh, on one page he, he goes, God, I'm never separate. I can never be separated from your presence. You're all around me. Uh, I love you. You love me. It's great. Everything's happy. And then you flip over the page and he's like, Lord, I am in the depth of the of Tartarus. My soul is far from you. He questions, but not in a disrespectful way. Questioning to understand is not disrespectful. Now, not listening to the answer is disrespectful, or or thinking that the person doesn't know what they're talking about is disrespectful, but questioning to find out an answer is not disrespectful. The Bible says that uh, you and I as Christians, we should have iron that sharpens iron, That, that sort of understanding that when you read a scripture verse and I read the exact same scripture verse, we might not always think it means the exact same thing. And so what we do is we sit down together and we discuss it and we try and figure out and understand each other's points of view. Arguing to understand rather than what society teaches you, argue to win or argue to convert the other person to your point of view. These are two separate things and what she's doing is she's trying to argue to understand. She says, Lord, you've said this. Here's my counterpoint. She's wrestling with Jesus in a respectful way. And in verse 29, as we sort of land this story, this is what uh, Scripture says to us. He said to her, for this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Like every other story that we've talked about Jesus so far in this sermon series, the person had to step out and reach out in faith, and it wasn't until then that they received the blessing of Jesus. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. There was no weird, funky ritual. There was no... Uh, the exorcist kind of scene with chanting in Latin. There was no split pea soup with uh, heads spinning around. There was no theatrics whatsoever. Jesus simply said, because of your faith, this is the result. Now, I don't know a lot about demons, but what I do know is that they respond to the power that is in the name of Jesus. That Jesus... Uh, As we read in the book of Colossians, is the firstborn over all creation, the Lord of both the visible and the invisible. He is Lord even over demons. Now, uh, there's a a little bit of context here. In church... One of the things that you might hear often is that God rules heaven and Satan rules hell. And most popular sort of uh, uh, imagery of Satan is that he is a guy in a a red suit, he has horns, he has a tail, he has a pitchfork, and he sits on a throne and he decides when a person comes into hell what the person's punishment is going to be. Do you understand this sort of, this is the westernized image that we have of Satan, right? Uh, Yes, no, maybe? A little bit of head nodding, right? That's the image that we've got. Scripturally, that is not the case. Satan doesn't rule over hell. In fact, the Bible in the book of Revelation says that God rules over hell because he rules over everything. Hell is is Satan's punishment place. It's not his kingdom. He doesn't have dominion or authority there. He doesn't want to go there because he realizes that that is going to be a place of eternal punishment and torment for him. So what Satan is trying to do until Jesus comes back is drag as many humans there with him as possible to to join in his suffering. Have you ever heard the, the statement, misery loves company? right? That is Satan and hell. He's going there. He knows it. He doesn't want to go there alone. And so he was trying to drag as many people there with him as possible. He's going to tell people lies to get them there. He's going to to grant people the sinful desires of their heart so they don't follow Jesus, and so they go there. He's going to go to Christians, and he's going to lie to them about who they are and what their identity is in God so that they forsake God and they go there with him. Satan doesn't rule hell. Demons listen to the commands that come from an almighty, all-powerful God. In Scripture, we see that Jesus wasn't even present with this woman. She was from a way, way away. She was a Gentile from a completely different land. Like, she's from Canada, all right? And she comes down here, seeks Jesus and says, look, this is the problem, this is what's going on, you're the only one that can fix it. And after their conversation, he says, go back home, it's already done. Jesus' power doesn't need to be in the room for that demon to be gone because that demon understands that Jesus' authority comes from heaven and it is over all creation. And, And here's what's interesting. That authority that Jesus had, Jesus then gave to us. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and so I give it to you also. And so I get a little bit, I don't know, like a cognitive dissonance between Christians who on one hand think that their God is all-powerful, and yet on the other hand think that they are uh, somehow under the sway of Satan. And look, you don't have to be. You don't have to be under the sway of sin because Jesus conquered that on the cross. Demons have no place in your life because Jesus is Lord over all things. And this woman, this woman who her life had been torn apart to the point where she literally sought someone out in another country to try and figure out how to help her daughter. This woman went and found Jesus. Can you imagine what she was like on the way home? She had to have been elated because she met with Jesus and Jesus gave her what she wanted. But on the other hand, she had to be filled a little bit with trepidation. What if she got all the way home and Jesus wasn't the powerful person that she thought he was? And when she got back, that demon was still in her daughter. And so she travels home and travels home with these two contrasting emotions. And then when she opens a door and she goes in and her daughter's there lying in bed, completely free from spiritual oppression, the joy that she had to have felt superseded any other emotion, I believe, in her life to that point. Because there is no greater emotion to be felt something that was lost, something that is damaged, something that has been destroyed, being 100% mended and fixed and returned. And the reason that I want to end on this is because that's the same joy that the Father feels when any of His created children come home to Him. That you, in your life, as a sinner, your life has been broken and destroyed and cast down. But then when you return to Jesus and the Holy Spirit enters your heart and starts binding it together from the brokenness into the wholeness that is in Christ Jesus, the rejoicing in heaven has to be immense. And so ending our time together, we're going to pray. I want you just to think on these things. How much rejoicing in heaven was there when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Sometimes we sort of feel like we accept it and then there's no real, any forward momentum going from that point. But the reality is, is there is rejoicing in heaven. There is rejoicing in heaven over your soul which once was broken and weighed down by sin being restored through the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us together to come into your presence. Lord, we thank you for what we see in Scripture. The people who sought you out. Lord, sought you out even even when they thought the hope might have been less less Lord, we thank you that even though Jesus came for the Israelites, that there was enough left over for the rest of us. And through the power of Jesus Christ, each one of us can come into a saving relationship with you. Lord, we love you. And we pray these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.